Hi, this is Alan Ruff, the Thursday host of A Public Affair. If you have a moment and the, the resources, remember to support the station. And if you will, head over to wrtfm.org to donate and to see what else is going on at the station. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. And good afternoon and welcome to this, the Thursday edition of a public affair. I'm your host for this hour. My name is Alan Ruff. With Israel Israel's horrific war of attrition against the entire population of Gaza showing no signs of ending, the U.S. last Friday escalated its direct military involvement in the region as its warplanes carried out airstrikes on more than 85 targets in Syria and Iraq. So how do we come to some deeper understanding of the current situation, one that goes beyond that provided by U.S. government officials, innumerable spin doctors, and mainstream U.S. news coverage. Joining us to share his perspectives and to provide some context for the ever-evolving crisis and the increasing likelihood of a broader regional Middle East conflict is Rami Khoury, a journalist and author with 50 years experience covering the Middle East. Khoury currently is a distinguished fellow at the American University of Beirut. Welcome to WORT, Rami Khoury. Thank you, Alan. Alan, glad to be with you. You know, I'd like to start with your assessment of the current situation in Gaza. What are you hearing? What might you share with us regarding the plight of the Strip's people? Well, I can't really add much more than what has already been um, exhaustively uh, shown and described on social media and some of the news in the U.S., not very much of it, though. But the situation is catastrophic uh, to the point where the International Criminal Court, which is a pretty serious body, maybe the the most serious law court in the world, uh, said that there's plausible evidence that there is a genocidal um, process taking place by Israel to to do genocide against the Palestinians in Gaza. I mean, this is pretty serious. This is something that rarely uh, happens in the world. Um, and the, the, just the watching people starve to death and die because there's no medicine, there's no water, children drinking out of puddles of mud water. I mean, it's just beyond anything I have ever experienced in the world uh, in my life of my you know, long and happy life of 75 years now. And I've seen a lot uh, in the U.S. and mostly in the Middle East. Uh, uh, and the, the astounding thing is that the, the, the atrocities, the barbarism, the, the cruelty of what Israel is doing with the total, full, open, uh, enthusiastic support of President Biden and the American administration, um, even though a majority of Americans want a ceasefire, but the government of the U.S. is 100% with Israel. And um, this is hard to explain uh, why the U.S. is taking this position. Uh, and it's not just the U.S., it's also uh, much of the Western world. In fact, it's mostly the former colonial powers. This is what's so interesting. When you look at the votes at the UN and the votes about ceasefire and things like that, uh, it's England, France, um, uh, Germany, uh, the US, um, Canada, Canada, New Zealand, uh, Australia, former colonial powers or colonies um, that support this, that want the war to keep going for some reason. And um, the most of the Global South, which is the majority of the people of, say, I would say around 
around 600, 700 of the 800 billion people in the world are supporting both the call for a ceasefire and Palestinian rights, or equal Palestinian-Israeli rights, equal rights, rather than this Israeli uh, domination attempt. Um, uh, so these are the, that's, the, that's the situation now. Um, we know, I think, how we got here, and we can talk about that, but it's really surprising, shocking, to see Western countries that, uh, that speak of themselves as promoters of democracy and the rule of law supporting a clearly genocidal attempt, which genocide and Holocaust scholars and atrocity scholars all over the world uh, widely have written about this as, as genocidal. Um, and um, it's surprising that this is going on. Uh, we'll have to get uh, political historians, but I think more we have to get psychiatrists to explain to us why a country with such noble principles as the U.S., uh, which we've just seen an hour ago, in this amazing Supreme Court process, where this you know these judges and they listen to testimony and they make a decision. The U.S. has so many uh, terrific dimensions of its governance system, but it is also a, a blatantly militaristic, almost sadistic colonial militaristic uh, hegemonic power in most of the of the South of the world. And this is, I use those words carefully, but, uh, but precisely uh, uh, as a journalist, word, wordsmithing is my, is my profession. And these are words that are now clearly supported by what the U.S. is doing in Israel and, and other Western powers, too. So this is something we have to get the world to help us figure out uh, in the coming period. Rami Kuri, at some level, it appears that Israel is carrying out an effort to make Gaza once one of the most densely populated places on earth, all but in completely uninhabitable. The New York Times on February 1st carried a long story complete with numerous images and maps regarding the controlled explosion leveling of whole sections of Gaza's urban scape by specialized demolition, demolition teams. What, if anything, does that tell you about Israel's primary goals, short and longer term? It tells me and many others that um, we have seen clearly now Israel has exposed itself to the world about what it what it's about and its values and what it wants. And this uh, claim that it always makes that, you know, they have the right to defend themselves, which they do, everybody does. Uh, but what they're doing is going way beyond defending themselves. They're, they're carrying out this, this uh, uh, criminal genocidal mass uh, suffering and death policy. About 100,000 uh, Palestinians in Gaza have been either killed or injured, about uh, 27,000 uh, killed and the rest injured. But uh, an 80% of the people are, home, are displaced, living in tents, their homes are destroyed. So what it tells us is that uh, Israel doesn't want to coexist with the Palestinians peacefully. They'll come up with all kinds of arguments, and they did this at the International Criminal Court uh, two weeks ago when they presented their case. They, they were striking about the Israeli defense of the genocide accusation by South Africa was how uh, uninnovative it was. They just repeated the same cliches <clears throat> and propaganda lines and talking points that they've been, they've been presenting to the Western world uh, for the last, really for the last hundred years. And this is where we have to get into <clears throat> a little bit of history, but uh, I'll get into that in a minute. But the basic point is Israel doesn't want to coexist with Palestinians in a sovereign Palestinian state. 
nor does it want to live with Palestinians in a single state where they all have equal rights, which was a Palestinian proposition starting way back in the 1940s and 50s. Uh, it tells us that Israel, as um, its Zionist philosophy, the underlying philosophy that created the state of Israel <clears throat> and still drives it, is that uh, this is a land that is uh, only uh, to be under the jurisdiction of the Jewish people uh, because God uh, gave it to them, which is a you know pretty um, uh, unusual argument that most people in the world would not take to any serious court, but that's one of their arguments. <clears throat> and they keep saying that they, and they've kept expanding Israel, uh, settling uh, occupied lands. Uh, they've carried out uh, attacks and pogroms and, 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 and um, uh, um, ethnic cleansing ca campaigns against the Palestinians since the 1930s. There's been a war, to be fair. I mean, they didn't just do this out of isolation. They've been fighting each other. But the war started because in around 1915 or so, the Zionist, small Zionist movement of, of Jewish Europeans, mostly Russians and East Europeans, who were terribly treated, mistreated, abused by anti-Semitic white Christian Europeans, Russians, and North Americans. And I, it's totally understandable that the Jews in 1880 and 1890 in Europe, especially after the Dreyfus affair in France, um, they said, look, we got to have a country, a small number of Jews said, we got to have a country where the Jewish people can live in peace and be Jews. And, and I'm totally in agreement with that. But I'm not in agreement with the fact that they chose to make that country, my country, Palestine, which at that moment in 1900, 1915, in that the first 15 years of the 20th century, uh, Palestine was about 95, 96% Arab Palestinians like myself, Muslim, uh, Christian, uh, both mostly Muslim, uh, but, um, uh, and it was about 4 or 5% uh, Jewish. There always was a Jewish population there. They are part of the land, but for hundreds of years um, in the modern period, this has been a Palestinian a territory a majority and suddenly the Zionists wanted to make it a state of Israel and they succeeded and they succeeded long story but short is they got the British colonial power who was in charge of it after World War One to work with them and to put it into the Balfour Declaration of 1917 where, where Great Britain said it supports the creation of a Jewish national home in Palestine uh, and of course the Great Britain didn't have rights to the, that land to make that promise. So that was the first uh, colonial crime by the British out of many that followed. But w working with the colonial power, the Zionist movement succeeded in creating the Israel, the Jewish majority state. And of course, it's the massive immigration into Palestine moved quickly after the uh, advent of Hitler and, and the Nazis and the Holocaust. But the, but the, the Zionist movement started uh, you know, 40, 50 years before uh, Hitler uh, in the late 1800s. So, it's, uh, so we, we have to take uh, um, notice of the terrible situation that Jews in Europe and North America lived in uh, and for, with anti-Semitic, structural anti-Semitic uh, bias against them to the point where the U.S. and Great Britain, in the period between 19, I think 1907 and 1925, they both passed laws that Jews could not come there from Eastern Europe. The Jews were trying to escape the terrible anti-Semitic subjugation and pogroms and uh, mistreatment that they were suffering in Russia and Eastern Europe. 
and the U.S. and England would not take them. Um, so they they went to Palestine, and uh, but the, they they succeeded because they worked with Great Britain, who was the colonial power and collusion. And now they've been working with the United States in the last 40, 50, 60 years because the U.S. has taken over from England as the great power. Rami Khoury, I'd like to take a moment to shift our attention to the occupied West Bank. Amnesty International reported on Monday that, and I quote, with the world's eyes fixed on Gaza, Israeli forces have over the past four months unleashed a brutal wave of violence against Palestinians in the occupied West Bank. AI report stated that the IDF has carried out unlawful killings, used lethal force without nece necessary or disproportionate necessity or disproportionality during arrests and in protests and so on. What do you what can you tell us regarding what has been going on in the West Bank? That of course is quite unreported here in, in, in the States. Yes. Well the West Bank uh, and Arab East Jerusalem were occupied in the nineteen sixty seven war, one of many wars And um, the uh, the Israelis immediately, very quickly, um, quote, annexed Arab East Jerusalem, made it formally part of uh, Israel, uh, where which nobody in the world has really recognized. Um, uh, one or two little tiny uh, mini states that are you know under total U.S. tutelage, but there's seriously no serious recognition. Uh, and the same with the Golan Heights in Syria, which were occupied in '67. The Israelis annex that they say it's part of Israel forever, and it's not. Uh, but the West Bank uh, is, was important for Israel. They say for strategic reasons, um, and they also see it. Many Israelis and Jews see it as part of the biblical land of of, of Israel that that God gave to to Abraham uh, for the Jewish people in perpetuity. If you believe that, uh, if that version of the story. Um, so they started uh, right after 67, they slowly started sending uh, small groups of uh, Jewish settlers, uh, some of them from within Israel, some came from uh, Brooklyn and Chicago and uh, different places in the U.S. mostly. And they started building settlements, uh, small ones first and then bigger ones, and, and, and this went on steadily. So over the last uh, whatever it is uh, from, from 67 uh, to now, 50 years or something, um, they have moved, they have settled about 750,000 Jewish Israelis in the occupied uh, territories of the West Bank, uh, Arab East Jerusalem, um, and, and the Golan Heights. So the West Bank has around 700,000 or so. Uh, and these are big, we say settlements, but they're big cities. I've been there, they're, you know, there's, some of them have 50,000 people and they're, the big ones are right on the border with Israel, um, but then there's lots of little ones. So these settlements started um, as a political um, theological process, uh, but they also are evidence of the philosophy that I mentioned before, the underlying philosophy of the state of Israel, the Zionist philosophy, which is colonial and it's an, uh, an, a super nationalist that the land only belongs to them. And it's apartheid, because what's happened in most of the world now, UN and all kinds of people have studied it, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty, the credible people, including Israelis, they say, look, this is an apartheid system. It has two laws, 
law for Israelis, Jews, and laws for the Palestinians, unequal. So um, this is a sign of the continued ongoing uh, expansion of Israel. But combined with what happened a year ago, which is the current Israeli government came to power, very right-wing, as the only way that Netanyahu, the prime minister, could stay in power, which is to make a coalition with some really, really right-wing fascist uh, um, uh, members of, con of uh, parliament, of, of the Knesset in Israel, to get a coalition. And some of these guys were indicted before. I think one or two of them might have been in, in jail or something briefly 20, 30 years ago. These are real hard-core right-wing militant fascists. I mean, some of them are uh, like some of the the, the people uh, uh, in uh, in West Europe and, and, and North America who uh, are militant and they're hardline and and they they use uh, violence whenever they want to. So uh, this the West Bank now has got these uh, uh, groups of young uh, settlers who are going wild all over the place with the total approval of the Israeli government. With the army often with them, they attack towns, they burn people's homes, they steal people's uh, sheep and goats, they cut down their Palestinian olive trees. I mean, it's just a massive campaign that's been going on steadily, steadily over the over the last uh, many years, but it really picked up in the last year uh, with this right-wing government protecting these people, at one point handing out machine guns to them. Uh, so there's been, I don't know the exact number of, deaths, but something like, I think it's something like four or five hundred uh, West Bankers have died in the last four or five years, and, and they're dying much faster, not as fast as, as, as Gaza, but they're being killed. And um, so you have the same thing happening in the West Bank as you do in Gaza, but at a much slower rate, which is the trying to push the Palestinians out and let the Israelis, and they claim the Jewish people, take possession of that land exclusively uh, for them. And the Palestinians are pretty helpless. They, you know, they don't have a government really, um, and they're totally living under occupation. It's, oh, it's, it's hard enough for them to just go to work and go to school and pass, you know, 20 checkpoints on the way. And uh, so they can't really resist very much, but they try. Uh, and, uh, of course, Hamas is the most dramatic example of military uh, uh, violent resistance. Uh, but the Palestinians in the West Bank have, have tried to organize, if they can, small groups of militants in various towns like Nablus and, and Jenin. And the Israelis just go in there with the army. Uh, you know, once or twice a week in the evening, they go in, they shoot people, they take people prisoners, they destroy parts of the cities. Um, and nobody is doing anything about it. Nobody's doing anything uh, serious except verbal, you know, the U.S. says, well, you know, we should um, uh, reduce the violence against civilians or something. And, uh, but essentially, the U.S. is not opposing this policy very in any serious way, and neither is uh, any other big Western uh, global power. You're listening to Rami Khoury, a distinguished uh, scholar at the American University of Beirut. We'll be opening up the phone lines, oh, in just about... Uh, at half past the hour, so a few minutes from now, at 608-256-2001, if you want to join in the discussion with a question, a comment, an observation, again, 608-256-2001. Rami Khoury, for some time now, the U.S. has been carrying out a slowly escalating level of low-intensity warfare 
across the wider region against what is now commonly referred to as the axis of resistance. Hamas in Gaza, Hezbollah in Lebanon, the Houthi or Ansar Allah in northern Yemen, as well as a number of additional groups scattered across the region. Much of the mainstream press depicts these various members of this alliance as little more than Iranian proxies. Talk about that, but also talk about what you observed uh, back, oh, back in December, that any assessment of how the region has evolved since October 7th and what likely, likely lies ahead must acknowledge three critical points, points which mainstream U.S. media and political elites tend to ignore relating to the axis of resistance, regional network, military capabilities, and excuse me, trajectories. Go into that a little bit. Talk about this process that is underway. Yeah, this is really, really important, and it goes out on a regional level, uh, but it's linked directly and organically to Palestine because um, some of these groups like Hezbollah in Lebanon, I was in Lebanon when Hezbollah was created, and I've lived in Lebanon many years, um, and I've, you know, I've met Hezbollah people, I've, I've met the Hamas people, I know these people personally, uh, some senior, some middle level, some you know, journalists, different kinds, of, but these are people, ordinary people in these societies. You know, it's like if it's like from somebody from overseas says, oh, I, uh, I know the Trump people, uh, you know, because a taxi driver can be a Trump person or a taxi driver or a school teacher or a banker or somebody says, oh, I know those uh, left wing progressive, you know, radicals. Uh, and again, you know, these are not uh, isolated groups of people who are apart from society. These are just normal people in society, doctors, lawyers, cab drivers, grocers. Uh, they have certain political views uh, and they form groups and they and they take action. So I've met these people. I know them um, and how they came about and, and the conditions that happened to bring them about. And all across the region, one of the common sentiments that you hear uh, all the time from uh, responses to public opinion polling, which is now a really important uh, asset that we have, which we didn't have 20 and 30 and 40 years ago when I, I started work, we, we have now very precise, repeatedly confirmed insights into what ordinary people think around the Arab world. We didn't know that in the, I mean, we who lived there knew it, but it wasn't confirmed now. And what you see with these polls all over the region, many of them linked with credible American pollsters and European ones, as well as local ones, is the common sentiment is that Israel is a threat to the region the common thread, a th a thread um, common sentiment or a common thread is that um, the vast majority of Arab ordinary people support the rights of the Palestinians. They also support living in peace with an Israeli state, but they will only live with an Israeli state and only support it or recognize it if it uh, gives the Palestinians their rights and stops doing what it's doing in Gaza and the West Bank and other places. So uh, we have clearly pro-Palestinian uh, pro sentiments all across the region, which we really should call pro-mutual justice sentiments for Israelis and Palestinians. Because when I say something like, oh, he's pro-Palestinian, uh, it doesn't mean he's, he or she is anti-Israeli. And, and this is the uh, fact that most uh, of the uh, wild men and women in the United States who are, you know, violent, virulent, 
pro-Israeli supporters, they just ignore the fact or don't are not aware of it probably that the overwhelming majority of Arabs are perfectly willing to live with the state of Israel as a Jewish majority state and its 67 borders. The Israelis are not willing to do that. And and, and Netanyahu keeps reaffirming that. But anyway, the, the, the point is that pro-Palestinian, uh, pro-justice uh, for Israel and Palestine sentiments are very strong all across the region. And some Hezbollah and Hamas Hamas and Palestine, Hezbollah and Lebanon, were both born out of a similar uh, phenomenon which, or an experience, which is being occupied by the Israelis. The Israelis occupied Gaza uh, and the West Bank, and the Israelis occupied South Lebanon for about, uh, I think it was about eight, ten years, and they tried to create a little um, uh, puppet state in the south of Lebanon, didn't work, and they had their troops in there for uh, some time, and, and then finally they were driven out because the Lebanese, uh, with some Palestinians who were based in the South guerrilla groups, uh, started pushing back against uh, the Israelis and developed more and more capable um, military techniques and um, and eventually pushed them out. In 2000, the Israelis were pushed out of uh, South Lebanon. Um, and, and Hezbollah was the factor that emerged <clears throat> in that period from the early 1980s on and became very, very powerful militarily and the same with uh, with Hamas. Hamas grew starting in the late 80s because the existing Palestinian leaderships, Yasser Arafat and the PLO, were unable to do anything. The world was not interested in pushing the Israelis to stop their colonization and subjugation of Palestinians. <clears throat> and the uh, uh, situation got worse and worse for Palestinians until finally these Hamas guys came along and said, look, we've got to do something. And they created a movement and uh, and they developed their capabilities. And there, here we are today where they're able to, to carry out the most uh, serious uh, assault on Israel in its modern history, um, uh, the, the attack they did on October 7. Whether people support it or don't support it, uh, I think everybody must recognize the significance of that attack, which is the ability of Hamas to develop capabilities, whether intelligence or coordination or secrecy or... Uh, um, um, uh, scientific uh, uh, intelligence and uh, communications, whatever, to be able to do what they did. Um, so th this is uh, s something you see across the region where the Yemenis, for instance, are not happy with what the Israelis are doing uh, in, in Iraq. And it's not just about Israel, though. So the, here's the bigger point. The U.S. is now fighting with shooting at people in Syria and in Iraq and in uh in the West, Israel or the U.S., they're shooting people in Yemen uh, and uh, the West Bank. And and uh, the is Israel and the U.S. are seen as a single unit, which is, I think, is how they must be seen. Um, and uh, the people around the region are not happy with the U.S.'s military presence, uh, both for giving you total support for, for Israel, uh, but also there's about, I don't know how many, I think there's around... Uh, 35 or 40 American military bases all around the region. One of those little bases in East Northeast Jordan was uh, hit the other day, and three Americans died. And and this is what triggered this latest round of uh, um, American and British attacks in Yemen and other places. So the um, the fact is that there is strong uh, criticism of the U.S. for its militaristic policies across the region, which both support the uh, unbridled uh, Israeli occupation 
expansion and, and brutality policies that Israel has pursued, uh, but also the American uh, policies support Arab autocratic governments that do not give their people many significant citizenship rights. Um, so ordinary Arab citizens are angry with their own governments, are angry with the Israelis, and are angry with the Americans who support both of them. And and this is, this anger has developed over decades, and I've lived through this whole process starting in the 1970s. And, and, you know, it exploded in 2010 in these uprisings, uh, the, the intifadas. You know, people in the United States are, are scared of the word intifada. Well, intifada just means an uprising, and it, it happened when people in, in the West Bank started challenging the Israeli occupation uh, in, the, in the 80s and 90s. And then in 2010, the citizens in many Arab countries rose up against their regimes and overthrew some of them and others are not. Uh, in the end, the uprisings did not succeed in bringing about democratic systems. The autocrats remain in charge across the region. But you have in this whole area a devastated citizenry across Arab countries uh, poverty is now around 65-70% across the entire region. If you take away the rich oil countries, it means that in most other countries, you're talking about 80% poverty. Uh, people are uh, losing the uh, um, good quality social services they used to have. I remember in the 60s and 70s, you know, most people had electricity, uh, running water, uh, good schools, uh, but all of that has deteriorated. So the, the quality of life has deteriorated for, for the vast majority of Arabs. And they link this with Israel and the U.S. and their own autocratic leaders. And there's other, uh, other things as well. So, but, so the U.S., by pushing militarism as its primary tool of foreign policy, sanctions, threats, or military action, <clears throat> it has generated a strong counter-reaction and and uh, and I'll finish with this. The the react the situation now, which is so significant, is that these these groups and uh, Hezbollah and Hamas and <clears throat> Ansarullah in Yemen and the uh, popular mobilization uh, forces in Iraq, they've all come together in an integrated way. They help each other with military technology and training, supplies, manufacturing their own weapons, uh, and that's how Hamas was able to do what it did and how Hezbollah has been able to uh, push Israel to a, a kind of detente, deterrence, uh, on a truce on the border <clears throat> where neither side, Israel nor Hezbollah, wants to get into a full-scale war because it'll be devastating to everybody. Um, and it's because of the increased technical capabilities of these uh, axis of resistance groups, um, all of whom have strong links with Iran, but they're all nationally <clears throat> anchored uh, uh, groups that work for their own country, and they have uh, shared interests uh, with Iran, but they're not they're not run by Iran. The the, percept, the misconceptions in the U.S., especially in the in the mainstream media, uh, the misconceptions about these people who are challenging the U.S. are, are so uh, laughable, uh, but they're very current. And this is one of the problems that we have, where you have a pretty incoherent national policy coming out of Washington in the Middle East combined with a compliant mainstream media that perpetuates the, the myths and the misconceptions and some of the racism and um, the, all the bad things that come out of the American policies. Um, and this is the situation that 
it brings us to where the U.S. you know has to fight in Afghanistan, fights in Iraq, fights in Syria, now Yemen and, and Israel. They might have to get involved. So it's a it's a situation that really cries out for a reassessment of uh, both American policy in the region and for the Arabs and the Israelis to reassess can they get out of this cycle and shift into a negotiation that might lead to a situation <clears throat> that resolves their 100-year-old conflict in a way that South Africa was resolved, Northern Ireland was resolved, other tough conflicts were resolved. Uh, so really, we're all challenged to wake up and, and uh, get out of this mad cycle of, uh, of militarism, which really only benefits the arms manufacturers in, in the United States, essentially, and some of the politicians that support them. Again, you're listening to Rami Khoury, 50 years experience as a journalist in the Middle East and a currently a distinguished fellow at the American University of Beirut. Uh, the lines are open if you want to join the conversation. It's 608-256-2001. Rami Khoury, while stating that, quote, the increasing power integration and influence of the axis of resistance rank among the most significant geostrategic developments in the Middle East in the last half century. You have, while noting that, you have pointed out that the story has largely been overlooked or underreported by the mainstream media across the West. Talk about the role of U.S. mainstream media and, its, and the reasons you see for its lack of analysis. Yeah, this is one of the tragedies, really, of uh, the American-Middle Eastern uh, relationships. I know the U.S. media very well. I've worked with the Washington Post, the Boston Globe, McGraw-Hill. I've written for top America, NPR. I've, written, I've worked with all these people uh, over the last 40 years, mostly from the, from the Middle East. Uh, and I've followed the American media all my life. I went to journalism school here in the United States in the 60s and early 70s. And so I, I, I have a very strong, clear, and admiring uh, view of the American media in principle. But when it comes to coverage of the Middle East, it's a catastrophe, the mainstream media. There are pockets of progressive groups, independent groups, <clears throat> who, are, who do give you a more complete picture. Um, and they don't rely on, say, advertising or political patronage for their survival. Uh, but the mainstream media is a catastrophe because it essentially reproduces American government broad positions that, you know, the Israelis are only defending themselves. We can, we have to support them. Or Hamas is a terrorist group. And these are issues that really deserve debate. I'm not saying they're all, all right or all wrong, but they're not debated at all. <clears throat> the assumption is that you know, Hezbollah, Hamas, Iran, Iran especially, the United States is is, is uh, obsessed with Iran. I've been to Iran. I know a lot of uh, Iranians, and they're amazing people. And the ones who come here to the U.S. are the most amazing because they don't want to live in an autocratic system, so they come here. And, and if any of the listeners know Iranians here, they probably are impressed by them. But So the perception of the U.S. government of these Arab groups who push back against Israel, push back against the U.S., uh, and the view of Iran and the U.S., they're all part of a package which the U.S. government insists on promoting, and that package is heavily, heavily, heavily shaped by the views of the government of Israel. 
the and we see it all the time. You know, I've done, uh, you know, written articles, and I'm doing a study now of the propaganda points that Israel has used for the last 50 years, and I've experienced this since <laughs> since the late 1980s when I would debate with some of the uh, Hillel or Nebrith uh, students at universities when I was in university. We'd have debates about things, and the, and and I do the debates now all the time with Israelis. And they're saying exactly the same thing that they said 50 years ago. They haven't updated their talking points or their propaganda points, most of which are exaggerations, diversions, or lies. And I use those words carefully but precisely. Um, uh, So this is the problem, that the Israelis and the Zionists before them, the Zionists were able to work with the British colonial powers to take the land of Palestine and make it an Israeli state. And the... Americans have, Israel, the state, has worked with the United States predominantly to maintain that position of strong Western support for Israel. And one of the most important ways that it does this is by um, uh, influencing the media to promote the same points and values and policies and and, uh, reasons for what Israel is doing, the same things that Israel says, they go to the U.S. government, they go to the media. Usually they go to the media first, and then they influence the government. For instance, i give you one example. When the uh, uh, October 7 attack happened, which was a very brutal, uh, violent attack, and civilians were killed, and uh, clearly there were elements of that which are totally unacceptable. And, um, and at some point, you know, all the people in the Middle East, Israel, Pal- uh, Palestinians, uh, Arab governments, uh, Iran, everybody at one point has to be held accountable for what they did. And if it's terror, then they're held accountable. If it's a uh, <clears throat> if it's a war crime, they're held accountable. Israel was just held accountable at the International Court of Justice for genocide, which is a rare, very important uh, thing. But if you just go back to that uh, October 7 attack, without getting into it in too much detail, because we don't have time, one of the first stories that came out is that uh, babies were decapitated, that Hamas cut the heads off babies and put them in ovens and did things like, terrible things like that, uh, mass rape. And, and Biden, the president of the United States, repeated this on TV. His staff told them, you know, that's not sure, you know, you got to be careful, but that's not verified. He didn't care. He just did it because that's what he has been conditioned to do as a successful American politician over the last 40 years, which is to be very close to Israel, and it's worked for him in many ways. And this is one of the issues that we have to explore. Again, why so many people in the U.S. are so uh, strongly, uh, passionately uh, supporting Israel, not just supporting its right to exist, which I think all of us do, I certainly do, it has a right to exist, but it doesn't have a right to exist as a colonial apartheid expansionist uh, state. Uh, it has to exist peacefully with the Palestinians with the same rights for them. <clears throat> but that's that's a s- separate point. But he, he, you know, they don't, people like Biden and others, they don't just support Israel's right to exist. They support Israel's right to be genocidal, as it is now, and uh, starving people to death in, <clears throat> in Gaza, denying them medicine, denying them uh, water. It's unbelievable that the, the cruelty, the depravity of what Israel is doing, and the Americans support it. And it's because, I think largely, it's because Israelis send these messages to the media, the media swallows them, and then it, these uh, and disseminates them, and, and these 
influence the government leaders here and influences other uh, people in society. So when Biden said that after two days that, oh, I've seen these pictures of uh, decapitated babies, of course, he had not seen the pictures because the pictures don't exist. Uh, the, the studies show this was not this was fake news. Uh, and there was five or six stories. I'm com- There's an article I'm coming out with in the next uh, two days, which uh, I'll send you, and you can put it on your website if people are interested, which goes over the mechanisms by which the Israelis influence the media. And the media here, including New York Times, uh, Wall Street Journal, the top media, they just bl- lap this stuff up and present it to the readers without any uh, checking or uh, the stories like the attack on UNRWA now, the UN Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees, the Israelis are attacking UNRWA, <coughs> saying it's part of Hamas, which it isn't, of course, uh, and the media just passes it on, to, and, and the government says, oh, oh, really, Israel said that? We stopped funding UNRWA. So you have this knee-jerk Pavlovian uh, reaction uh, between the American government, uh, much of the American media, and the Israeli propagandist uh, um, institutions um, in Israel. And this is one of the problems we have. This is one of the cycles that has to be broken. And I repeat, we've got to break this cycle to be able to get to the point where an Israeli Jewish majority state can exist in peace with a Palestinian sovereign state. That's the aim. And the Israelis, of course, will say, oh, they want to just destroy all the Israelis. They want to kill Jews. They want to throw Israel into the sea. Well, people might have said that in the 50s and 60s, but it's not the case now. And most people in the U.S. are not well-informed, and they can't challenge those uh, lies. And the government uh, finds that when it perpetuates those positions, it benefits somehow in different ways. Uh, and so that's that's where we are. So the media is a real problem. But the last point I'd say is the good news is that there are now um, independent media websites, magazines, newsletters, uh, you know, portals, whatever the words we use to describe these things now on social media that are not part of this uh, uh, colonial apartheid um, massive global uh, military hegemonic hegemonic monster that the U.S. Uh, heads, they are doing independent checking. And all of these stories that have come out since October 7 are now being systematically checked. The tunnels under the, uh, the, 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 the military coordinating uh, centers under the hospitals in, in Gaza was another one. There, there was no military coordinating center under uh, Shifa Hospital and, and the other ones that the Israelis mentioned. So this is good because you've now started to get independent investigations that debunk the lies. And the good point, and I've researched this and talked to friends in the U.S. media, they're very careful now. If Israel makes a statement, they're more and more careful in the U.S. about just publishing it because they've published so many things that proved to be not true. Uh, and it makes them uh, look bad. And so this is a good point. So if, if if this war, with all its suffering, can move us to a situation where Americans and people in the West <clears throat> can look at uh, the Israelis more accurately and push more forcefully for equal rights for Israelis and Palestinians, uh, there may be hints of that now coming out, even coming out of the U.S., but two states which is great, we want. So that's uh, that's what I'd say quickly about the media. I want to come back to um, this uh, further historical context for the growing regional resistance that we were addressing earlier. 
uh, certainly uh, much of it is linked to the Israeli war being waged in Gaza. But you've also noted that the Islamic resistance in Iraq and Syria did not come out of nowhere, but emerged from the destruction and chaos chaos that happened in Iraq following the U.S. invasion in, in two, 2003. Is it, fair to say, is it fair to say that in an important sense, much, excuse me, much of what we are increasingly witnessing now tails back to the U.S., to what the U.S. did in Iraq, a kind of longer-term simmering blowback? Yes, the, the Iraq uh, situation, the U.S. invasion of Iraq to get rid of Saddam Hussein um, under the false pretext that he had, uh, he was developing nuclear and chemical weapons and uh, wanted to take over the Middle East, <clears throat> proved to be totally untrue, but they, they did it. This is how the system works. They come up with, and this is very much, Israelis were all behind this very much. They wanted to cut Iraq down. Any power that emerges in the Middle East, Iraq, Syria, Egypt, Iran, the Israelis want to cut it down because they don't want to be facing a big power. And and the U.S. usually uh, picks this up, goes along with it. And um, So the invasion of Iraq was based on lies and false pretenses. And it resulted in getting rid of um, Saddam Hussein and the Ba'athists and creating a terrible, terrible vacuum in Iraq, which the United States, in its, uh, you know, in its innocence, um, to use a polite word, um, not totally, totally not knowing how the Middle East works and social values and political issues and identities, sent in these <clears throat> bureaucrats to Baghdad, and I've met many of them, and some of them are even my friends, but they, they were sent in to create a new political system, uh, and they had no idea what they were doing. Uh, it was unbelievable. And they created this system and said, okay, we've got a democracy in Iraq, and thank you very much, and, and they went home. Well, what they did is they unleashed massive forces of anger and resentment and pent-up uh, uh, sentiments from the last 20, 30, 40 years, <clears throat> both against the U.S. and against the uh, Sunni minority that ruled uh, Iraq under Saddam and other other reasons. And this unleashed uh, chaos, really, and from this chaos emerged small militant groups who were fighting against the Americans, who remained there for some time, and fighting against the Iraqi remnants of the Ba'athist regime of Saddam. Uh, and these small groups got more organized. Some of them were supported by Iran, some were supported by other people. Uh, but they, these are the groups that eventually created ISIS, um, the uh, the terror movement ISIS and the Islamic so-called Islamic State, <clears throat> and um, and they 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 created a, a tradition of milis, militias in Iraq and Syria. Syria controlled them more, but Syria, the government Syria, only now controls about fifty percent of the country. The rest is occupied by Turkey, the United States, and uh, Kurdish groups and others in the north. But the Iraqi situation uh, brought us to the point today where we have all these uh, militant groups that are part of the um, uh, uh, resistance axis, um, and they started, some of them, in that period when the U.S. overthrew Saddam and these groups were formed to fight the U.S. to get them out of Iraq. So there's a direct link between the U.S. militarism in Iraq, the emergence of these uh, uh, axis of resistance people who became axis of resistance, 
um, and the wider uh, threat of terrorism across the region through uh, through ISIS. Because uh, when you create ungoverned spaces, this is where these people like Al-Qaeda and ISIS and others, they move in. Um, and uh, it's like, uh, you know, in urban centers in big cities in the West, if you have poor government, poor services, poverty, gangs take over, and they provide what people need. Um, and it's a, a similar situation, but on a national uh, national scale. So the U.S. has to rethink its focus on, on militarism and should also stop thinking that all the world wants to be like Kansas. Kansas is a fine place, great basketball, great schools, great whatever, farming, but the world does not want to be like Kansas or Mississippi or Maine. There are these are you know all the great things in the U.S. are great because Americans did them for the most part. Uh, I mean, but the U.S. has to stop trying to recreate itself around the world and live with the values and the identities that other people have. Rami Curry, I want to get we have a caller that's waiting patiently to get in <clears throat> with a question or comment. Hello, Steve, you're on the air. Yeah, thanks, Alan. Uh, addressing Mr. Curry. Isn't the continuation of military ops in Gaza and Judea merely a deliberate distraction for both on-ground observers and U.S. stateside observers from the, uh, to say the least, complicated Israeli domestic litigious narrative against uh, certain politicos starting at the top with Bibi? Thank you. Thank you. Um, uh, the... Uh there is an argument that uh, Bibi Netanyahu, Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister, who put together this kind of fascist coalition, which has unleashed violence uh, all over the place. Uh, he's doing that because it's the only way he can uh, stay in power. And if he's not in power, he's, he's, be, he's been indicted and he faces four different court charges, I believe, for corruption, abuse of power and things like that. And as long as he's in power, he can't be taken to court. So there is that argument, but the Israeli people are not that stupid or gullible uh, to just say, okay, let's keep fighting wars and doing this. And the whole world now is against Israel. You know? So the reason I say that the Israeli people, and I've, I've been to Israel many times, and I have you know, many uh, Israeli friends and Jewish friends all over the world since I was five years old. And so <clears throat> these are, you know, the Israeli people are not stupid enough to uh, say, okay, let's keep the uh, Netanyahu in and do all these wars, because Israel now is seen as a is starting to be seen as a pariah around the world. Uh, people are breaking off uh, contracts. The Spain is not has not sending military sales to um, to um, Israel. Uh, Japan has thrown out the biggest Israeli military contractor that had a plant in Japan. The Japanese threw them out. Other people in Europe places have stopped uh, dealing with the Israeli government because of the International Court of Justice ruling that there is uh, strong evidence that Israel is undertaking a genocide. And the International Genocide Convention, which Israel and the U.S. and others signed, requires, doesn't suggest, but requires all countries in the world to do what they can to stop the genocide. And so this is a really important point we're at now where there is a clear, uh, legal, credible, global uh, affirmation of the genocidal actions that Israel is doing, and everybody is supposed to do what they can to stop it. The U.S. is doing the, the opposite. It's sending more aid, more guns, uh, refusing to do a ceasefire. Uh, they talk a nice talk. You know, Blinken is around 
the region now and, you know, you know, five times a day and twice in the sleep, he says, oh, we need to reduce the violence. Bibi, uh, the, the Israelis, Netanyahu has to reduce the violence on civilians. But this is nonsense. It's totally un, uh, non-credible. And uh, people know this. And uh, so it's a charade. And uh, the game goes on. But the suffering is increasingly not just in Palestine, but the Israelis are starting to now to feel that they are a pariah nation. People don't want things to do with them. They're being kicked out of music festivals and sports competitions like South Africa. This is exactly how South African apartheid was <clears throat> defeated. Uh, and the, the Israelis are likely to feel, get more of this because one of the great new developments, which has just kicked off last week, is you're getting dozens of law cases uh, all around the world in national courts as well as international ones challenging the relationships that people have with Israel. So people are, you know, Biden was already taken to court in the U.S. for uh, being an accomplice to a genocide. And the court in California uh, said, yes, the, it seems clear that genocide is taking place and Biden should not help. It. But he, the court could not tell him uh, me, that he have jurisdiction. Yeah, I'm sorry, but uh, we're really out of time here. It went by so fast and I had so much more I wanted to discuss. We'll have to have you back sometime. You've been listening to Rami Khouri, who is a, a distinguished fellow at the University, uh, uh, American, excuse me, American University of Beirut, uh, journalist, longtime writer on events in the Middle East. I want to thank Dave for engineering, Jade for producing, Rami Khouri, of course. I want to thank you very much for your time and your efforts. Keep on doing what you do. I've been your host for this hour. My name is Alan Ruff. Don't take no prisoners if you can't afford to feed none. Don't start no fights if you cannot predict the outcome. Don't make donations where you cannot get your dough back. The apathetic bullshit to send them all your Prozac. I will not climb into your telephone tree in hell.